Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld. John, we're continuing, actually concluding uh, your series on the Book of Romans, yeah. uh, the lifestyle of the gospel, yeah. of what you're going to be talking about today. And and you know, over these weeks, you know, you've really provided us an incredible summary. But where do we go with the lifestyle of the gospel? Well, it's it's application. I mean, Romans is, is a heavy theological book, and it talks about so many important theological issues that Christians need to consider, but it just doesn't leave us hanging there with a theological lecture. I mean, it talks about what's the outcome of that? How does that interact with your real life? What does that mean you live like? And so it kind of spells that out in some very practical ways. It's, it's about Christian lifestyle. Well, John, that's going to be fantastic. You know, I should say that you're going to go through a lot of material in a, in a very short period of time. Yes, so am. people should really get ready. So join us in just a few minutes right here on Truth and Life Today. I have entitled the uh, last five chapters of the book of Romans, The Lifestyle of the Gospel. Now, the, the term lifestyle is not found in those five chapters, but I, I think it's an appropriate title. But before I get into the details, I want to talk about this whole idea of lifestyles. You know, I, the idea of lifestyles is, I think, a, a contemporary idea that there's, there are different styles in living. We're not making a, a moral judgment upon how people live. We're just saying, hey, that's your style. Um, I think all of us have seen a program, I think, on television called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Maybe I'm the only one that haven't seen it, but, but it's there, and it, it will tell you that the, the rich and the famous uh, live in you know certain luxurious houses, and maybe they have a yacht and and maybe some pretty nice cars and whatever else they have, um, and that will constitute the way or the style in which they live their lives. Now, in our culture, lifestyle tends to see a wide variety of different patterns. For instance, sexual orientation is often called a lifestyle. Sometimes, you know, the person who's the outdoorsman or the outdoors person, I should say, uh, that individual can be seen as a lifestyle individual. They like to hunt or fish or live the most of their lives in the out of doors. Uh, motorcyclists are sometimes seen as people who have that lifestyle or that hobby, I guess. But hobby and lifestyle tends to melt itself together. A person chooses a form of living. And here's the question I have to ask. Does the gospel of Jesus Christ indicate or necessitate a form of living? That's the question I want to ask. Now, in Romans chapter 1 to 4, we have the heart of the gospel. In chapter 5 to 8, we have the power of the gospel. In chapters 9 to 11, we have, you know, the, the progress of the gospel. But here at the end, it's, it's as if we come to an application. Learning all this other stuff, is there something that tells us how to live? Now, that's not unlike how Paul speaks in a lot of his letters. Now, those of you who know Ephesians well will know that Ephesians is divided very neatly into the first three chapters and the last three chapters. So the first three chapters are doctrinal. They're theological, they're content that tells us what to believe. And the last three tell us how to live. That is, the application based on what you believe ought to be felt in some area of your life. And so, for instance, reading from Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm reading at verse 17. So this is the application content. Paul writes, now I say this and testify to it in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In other words, what he's saying is that the way in which you now live your life better look substantially different than you do, or than you did look when you lived your life before you're a Christian. So there is 
according to Paul and according to our Bible, a lifestyle that is related to the gospel. If you believe the gospel, the way you live is different than the way others live. Now, there are other passages in Scripture that speak about that. I'll get to Romans in a moment. But listen to these words in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. It says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, says Peter. So that obviously was a feature of life in the Roman Empire. When people came to Christ, suddenly the way in which they lived their lives, which you know, in, in the Roman world was a very sensuous style of world, which in many ways is like the world we live in today. So Peter says you want to withdraw from your sensual behavior, even if it means that there will be those who will mock you for the way in which you live your life. And then in 1 Peter 2, verse 12, he says to believers, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what Peter has in mind is that the way in which Christians live their life causes non-Christians to watch us and to say, hey, that's a very different way of living than the way that we do. You know, they might malign you, but they might not. They might glorify God. They might say, you know, there's something I want to know about that God that causes these people to live this way. And so it changes everything. Uh, the way in which we live our life is not just lived so that God is pleased, which is a great part of it, but it's also lived so that the watching community can see us and say, man, being a Christian does make you remarkably different. See, with all that in mind, I want to get to the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, at the beginning of the book, something fascinating was said. I'm reading Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. Paul is speaking about the kind of ministry that he has. He says, through whom, that is through Jesus, we, uh, that is I, he says, have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Now, I'm going to say that this phrase, the obedience of faith, might seem strange to you, but Paul uses it rather proudly. Now, all throughout Romans, he'll tell us we're saved by grace through faith alone. There's nothing you can do to earn your own salvation. It's given to you as a gift. All you need to do is believe God. And yet here, when he speaks about the faith that saves, he talks about it as an obedience of faith. In other words, the kind of believing that Paul has in mind results in obedience to Christ. i give you an example. You know, one of the things that Christ calls us to do is not to worry about anything. And it tells us why, because, you know, God is in control of all things. Um, you know, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. Well, an obedience of faith would be like this. If I trust God in all things, I'm not going to worry about all things. It changes the way I interact with my environment around me. That's just one small example. What Romans 12 to 16 is all about is working out the implications of believing. It changes your lifestyle. The way you live your life after this will never be the same.
You know, on the one hand, when we read Romans chapter 12 to 16, we, we could read it as just a separate set of instructions in regards to this, in regards to this, in, in regards to this, how should you act and, and what does your lifestyle now look like as a Christian? But what I'm going to say is that you can easily divide Romans chapter 12 all the way through chapter 16 into seven sections. I know that's a lot, but, but bear with me on this. I'm going to say that Romans chapter 12, 1 to 2, the very first two verses in this section, give you the foundational principle. What does it mean to live a Christian lifestyle? So there we'll simply read, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I'm going to come back to that verse, but at the very outset, please understand that's the foundation upon which everything else is built. You are to be a living sacrifice. Your entire mindset about what life is all about is going to be radically transformed when you come to Christ and start believing in Him. Okay, that's the foundational principle. The second section in Romans 12 to 16 is the rest of chapter 12, and it will talk about living in community. We don't live in an isolationist capacity anymore. I mean, we are now communal. We live as a part of a believing community called the church, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. So we've got a foundational principle, and then we have Christian living in community. That's our lifestyle. We're not individualists. Thirdly, in chapter 13, Paul will speak about what it is to live in a non-Christian society, in the wider culture. Um, when they don't share our Christian values, how do we interact with that? And the famous section in Romans chapter 13 is the section about Christian interaction with civil governments. How do we respond to governments that might even be hostile to our faith? So that's Romans chapter 13. And then the fourth principle is uh, in Romans 14, and I've called that expressions of freedom. In other words, there are a great many areas in our lives that are not necessarily moral. We have a great deal of freedom to make decisions in various areas, and Paul talks about those areas where we have freedom to choose our lifestyle, and yet he mitigates this with the principle of love and concern for fellow believers. So I've got the foundational principle in the beginning of the section. I've got chapter 12, which is living in community. Chapter 13 is living in a non-Christian society. Chapter 14 is expressing our freedom. Uh, then chapter 15, the, the fifth area, is the life of self-denial. I mean, I, I suppose there's nothing more central to Christian living than living by denying ourselves and imitating the lifestyle of Jesus, who did not seek to please himself, but sought rather to please his Father and sought rather to give himself for the church, we're supposed to copy that lifestyle. And then in chapter, the rest of chapter 15, the, the sixth area, is the life of global missionary and service. I, I'm going to say something here. I've been around Christians for a long period of time, and and I have noticed something about faithful believers. They, they really think globally. Uh, they'll begin to tell you where the Christian church is growing in various parts of the world. They might mention a country like Nepal, where in the last 
you know, 20 or 30 years, uh, churches have been planted at an unprecedented rate, and the church is growing there in a way it never has before. And a great many Christians as well put various, you know, mission prayer requests on their regular daily prayer list so that they might pray effectively for the growth of the gospel around the world. It turns out, according to Paul, when he speaks about his own mission, about taking the gospel where it's never been heard before, that's really what that section of scripture is all about, he is really setting a template for the way in which all Christians think. Oh Lord, can the gospel grow? And then finally, uh, in the very end of Romans 12 to 16, and that is in chapter 16, we get this uh, noteworthy servants of Christ and a listing of individuals in the church of Rome whom Paul commends for having been faithful. In other words, there is this, there is this mutual encouragement society in the Christian church that kind of eggs each other on to continue to be faithful. Now, all of that is the lifestyle of the gospel. So having said that, I want to get back to the foundational principle and start with Romans chapter 12. Let me read it again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, says Paul. I'm making an urgent appeal. I, I, I'm begging you to listen to me on this. Brothers and sisters in Christ, hear carefully what I'm about to say. He says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Now, anyone who has read the entire book of Romans knows exactly what he means at that point in time. I mean, Romans is all about God giving mercy to his people. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but Christ has made us alive. He paid the penalty for our sins by becoming a sin substitute for us, and therefore eternal life has been granted to anyone who believes. That's mercy. And then Paul will say later on, therefore having been justified by faith or being declared righteous by faith alone, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's mercy. I mean, peace with God, the war between God and ourselves is over, says Paul, on the basis of that mercy. And then he talks about the giving of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the book of Romans is a declaration of how merciful God is to his people. On the basis of that, says Paul, because God has been so merciful to his people, here's what you must do in response. Present your body as a living sacrifice. In other words, present yourselves as an offering to God. Say, this is my body, God. You may use it as you see fit. I dedicate my bodily existence into your hands. That's my way, not of paying you back. That's my way of saying thank you. I mean, all Christian living starts on that premise. I gladly deny myself and present my body to Christ so that Christ would be glorified in me. I have nothing else to do in the face of such overwhelming mercy. You know, there's so much we can say about Romans 12 to 16. It's hard to know what to say and what to leave unsaid uh, in simply one program about this amazing section in our Bible. I, I notice that the Christian lifestyle begins by Paul saying in verse 3, For the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So in other words, we begin all of our lifestyle with humility. I'm not trying to, you know, get great accolades spoken about me. I rather gladly take second place because Christ did that for me as well. 
And, and then Paul adds to that, that on the basis of that, and I'm reading verse 4 of chapter 12, as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And then he speaks about the spiritual gifts that Christ has given the body. So at the outset, Paul is saying that if you want to live as a Christian, you're going to have to live in the context of the local church. Come to recognize that your church is your family. Give yourself to one another. Live life for one another. When you come to realize the gifts that Christ has given you, don't aggrandize yourself, right? And say, wow, look at the gifts I have. They're better than the next guy. No, rather we say to ourselves, look at the gifts that Christ has in grace given me. I'm going to look to use them to serve my fellow brother or sister in Christ. I, I give myself to the community of God's people. I live in community. I live by associating myself with the lowly. I live by associating myself with individuals that may not be well accepted anywhere else, but they're a part of my church family. I can't imagine any place to start Christian living other than that. You know, we live in this weird day, especially today. It's an individualistic society. Families are fractured and broken, and uh, we tend to, you know, cocoon ourselves. Individuals communicate with one another through electronic means and maybe not face-to-face, -face, and we've become very accustomed to thinking individualistically. And so the very place that we conform our thinking is that we think of ourselves in terms of relationship to others. See, that's Christian community. It's, it's the beginning of a Christian lifestyle. You can never live alone. And then Paul moves in chapter 13, as we've seen, to talking about Christians in the wider culture. So I, I'm going to read chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. Let every person be subject, he says, to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. I'm going to stop there. It's a remarkable statement. Paul wants all Christians to say that whoever has been put into authority at a local governmental level has been put there by God because God is sovereign. Now, that doesn't mean that the, you know, the prime minister, the president, the king, or whatever person who rules a local nation is in of himself a good individual, only to say that God has sovereignly placed that person there. Now, I'm going to say something that is implied in this text. What's implied in this text is that Christians respect governing authorities. And for me, this is a personal matter. Um, I have a, a personal story in my, my own family in which uh, my, my family, uh, that is my grandfather, was, was uh, put to death uh, by Stalinists, but my great-grandfather was put to death by anarchists. And in the end of the day, anarchy is a horrible play. Government is to be prized, and when it's good government, it ought to be prized above all other things. The Christian response to government is that we don't resist authorities that have been placed into power by God. Rather, we submit to them wherever possible. And I know it's not always possible. I mean, sometimes what governments require of Christians is something we can't do. Sometimes we have to say, we must obey God rather than men, but when we say that, we don't do it as rebels. We actually reach out our hand to the governing authorities and say, help me to be a good citizen. Please don't pass laws that put me at odds with the government. We seek to cooperate and to be good citizens. That's how Christians roll. It's a part of our lifestyle. That doesn't mean we don't vote for another party. It simply means that we will accept 
uh, those government that exists. And that means we also pray for it. So then after talking about that, uh, Paul will then also talk about forgiving one's enemies because that's a part of living in a non-Christian society. We will garner enemies, but our relationship to our enemies are one of love and forgiveness, grace rather than a retributional lifestyle. And you know, there are people that will say, I'll, I'll never let anyone get away with any slight against me. And the Christian lifestyle simply says, I'm going to forgive as Christ forgave me. When they nail Christ to the cross and he said, you know, Father, forgive them, I'm going to do the same. Well, we come to chapter 14, which is a fascinating chapter because it's, it's all about the use of Christian freedom. It turns out there are all sorts of things in this world that do not have a, an injunction from Scripture about it. You know, the Bible talks about morality a whole awful lot. And Christians are bound to keep the law of Christ. We're not free from that law. And there are commands that God has given us that we submit to. But there are a whole host of things in life that are not a part of any given biblical command. You know, whether or not you drink alcohol, uh, whether or not you get a tattoo. I mean, there's all sorts of things that you might do. I remember once, you know, getting onto my motorcycle at the end of a church service after I had preached, and a woman came to me and said, you know, where I come from, pastors are never allowed to ride motorcycles. And I informed her, I'm so glad that Christ has set me free from arbitrary human rules. And that's a fact. There are all sorts of things that we are given freedom to choose. But given that, Romans 14 tells us that we must make up our minds, and I'm reading verse 13, never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. However I use my freedom, I'm going to use my freedom in such a way that will build my brother up. It's not just about me and the freedom that I have. It's about how I impact the life of somebody else. How important all of that stuff is. You know, I could continue to go on because there's time just won't allow us to look at all of these things. So I must commend to you, take the time, read Romans 12 to 16. Get to know it thoroughly, learn to apply it, and learn how to live and recognize there is a Christian lifestyle. Hi, thanks again for joining us on Truth and Life today, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed this study on Romans as much as I have. Uh, just a couple of questions that uh, came to mind, though, John, as you were speaking. I think it's really important to, to sort of, I don't know, create a foundation for us that the lifestyle that we're talking about is just not a moment-in-time moment type of decision. It is a lifestyle. Yeah, you know, Ben, um, it is true that there is a point in time when anyone comes to Christ. I mean, once we were not in Christ, then we had surrendered our life to Christ. The Holy Spirit came to live in us. Everything changed. Mm -hmm. um, but you're absolutely right. There is a moment in time, but that moment in time becomes our moment for the rest of our lives. I remember been having a conversation with a young man once, and uh, we were talking about what Christ called him to be and do. And he said, ah, no, I got that thing taken care of years ago. And he was talking about the sinner's prayer. And he completely misunderstood that this life of faith in Jesus is all-encompassing. There's not a single area of our life that Jesus will not touch and will say, you know, that's mine. And uh, he calls everything to be transformed. I mean, that's how the whole text starts. Let's be transformed, yes? Yeah. Yeah. Would, it, would it be true to say then that our lifestyle is really evidence 
of what's going on in our heart and our life and our relationship with God. Yeah, we're not saved by our lifestyle, but our lifestyle is a window to what it is that I believe and whom I have believed. Yeah. You know, so it is all of those kind of things. So it's not possible to have biblical faith and not be transformed. Okay. Uh, that's, that's, just, uh, that's just it. One other thing, just before we finish up today, you talked about obedience in faith. Yeah. Can you help me understand that a little bit more? Yeah, I make a contrast between the obedience of works and the obedience of faith. Obedience of works says, if I obey, I'm earning brownie points, and they will be charged to, you know, to my account. Yeah. Uh, obedience of faith, rather, says, if I believe these things, I mean, there's no other uh, you know, alternative but to say, therefore, I will obey. Okay. So it's, it's a response of a life that's yielded to Christ. So your lifestyle is one of obedience to God, then? Absolutely. Fantastic. Thanks so much, John. And I should say, because you've gone through this so quickly over the last number of weeks, <laughs> that you have an entire series on the book of Romans yes. now, uh, one which is actually going to be aired on your radio program, Back to the Bible Canada. But there's an entire series where you should go into much more detail. And I would really uh, suggest that folks, as you uh, get more into the book of Romans, as your appetite has been whetted now, that you'll seek out that series as well. Thanks so much, John. Yep. And uh, remember to join us again next week right here on Truth and Life Today. Mm -hmm.